Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zen. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about the entail on the Longbourn estate. This is by far our most requested topic, like by a lot. A lot. So (laughs) we hope that everyone is very excited, especially because it gets a bit dry, okay? We're not going to (laughs) lie. So before we get started, we want to clarify that we are not attorneys or solicitors or anything of that sort. So, you know, (laughs) don't take anything said in this episode as actual legal advice as regards your property okay we are not here for Uh that (laughs) but i mean like seriously jokes aside this is a deeply complex topic especially since it has to do with several finer points of 18th and 19th century british inheritance law yes and perhaps because this is such a complex topic there are some differing perspectives about how to interpret this specific entail in pride and prejudice So we want to be clear on that up front. So we will be starting with some basic definitions and context, and then proceed to lay out some of the different interpretations of the Longbourn entail. Yes. So to set the scene for the topic, I mean, there's not much scene to set because this issue kind of encompasses the entire narrative. It's one of the central conflicts or tension points for the primary characters in Pride and Prejudice. And it's at least very much so a central concern for Mrs. Bennet. So we learn about it early on in the novel. So here we get from the text. Mr. Bennet's property consisted almost entirely in an estate of 2000 a year, which, unfortunately for his daughters, was entailed in default of heirs male on a distant relation. And their mother's fortune, though ample for her situation in life, could but ill supply the deficiency of his. So the entail is the thing that drives Mrs. Bennet all the time. (laughs) Hence why Mrs. Bennet is so anxious to get all these daughters married off. Absolutely. So any conversation about entailment in this era has to start with a discussion of primogeniture. Primogeniture, the word, literally means being the firstborn child in a family. But it has a specific meaning in English inheritance and law, especially when described as the right of primogeniture. So according to the Oxford Companion to the Romantic Age, as an inheritance custom, when written into the will, primogeniture was of particular importance to the landed aristocracy, as the devolution, or transfer of power, of the estate to the eldest son was complemented by the devolution of the aristocratic title to the eldest son, thereby securing a bond between landed status and titular authority. So that's a package deal. So that is basically saying that while primogeniture technically means firstborn child, the inheritance custom or tradition is to practice male primogeniture, meaning the firstborn male inherits. Primogeniture really kicked off sometime in the High Middle Ages, between 1000 and 1300 CE, for the European monarchies. In some of these systems, women could only inherit if she had no brothers, 
In others, women couldn't inherit no matter what. And in one particularly messy example that led to the 100-year war, men couldn't inherit through a female line. Francis King Charles IV had only daughters, and so, upon his death, King Edward III of England was technically the only male heir through the male line. The French were not interested in that, surprisingly (laughs) enough. Shocking. And so they had a really long war as a consequence. They're like, "Mm, we're going to change that rule. No, thank you. Yeah, we no, we're we're not into this English king idea. Okay, so the entailment of property comes right along with this idea of primogeniture. Again, the kind of a package deal. So the entail or fee tail process was intended to keep property in a single family and create a legal condition that property could only pass to particular people. So, for example, that'd be like, this is only going to go to the eldest son or sometimes the daughter. It's trying to say we're only going to allow the land to go to certain people. Entail would be in contrast to fee-simple property inheritance. According to Christine Grover's article, Pride, Prejudice, and the Threat to Edward Knight's Inheritance, a fee-simple was when there was no real limitations to what would happen to the land after the current estate owner passed. Grover writes, quote, As no conditions were attached to the inheritance, the beneficiary could sell, develop, or gamble it away, or bequeath it to whomsoever he wanted. So yeah, any, anything goes with a fee simple. But again, the contrast to this is the fee tail, or entail, where according to the Oxford Companion to the Romantic Age, quote, the purpose of the entail was to remove the power to sell the land from the owner of the estate, placing it in trust for his eldest son. This was achieved by placing the legal interest in the estate in the hands of trustees. When the son obtained his inheritance, usually at 21, he was persuaded to resettle the estate, placing it in trust for his, perhaps unborn, eldest son. Some of the common language for an entail, or fetal, would be something like to, blank, and the heirs of his body. And often this language would specify that it had to be a male heir. We get echoes of this legal language in Pride and Prejudice when we're told that Longbourn was entailed in default of heirs male on a distant relation. And since the Bennets do not have a son, the estate is going to Mr. Collins. We do, however, have examples of entails in which the language would permit a woman to inherit, which is what we see in Lady Catherine de Bourgh's situation. She has a moment when she is talking to Elizabeth and observes, Your father's estate is entailed on Mr. Collins. And then she continues, I see no occasion for entailing estates from the female line. It was not thought necessary in Sir Louis de Bourgh's family. We get a brief explanation of how this is possible from G. H. Tridel's article, Jane Austen and the Law. He writes, quote, One might think that the de Bourgh property had been settled on Lady Catherine for life. She can scarcely have less than a life interest in it, for it is inconceivable that she is living at Rosings as her daughter's guest, and that, subject to her life interest, it was entailed successively on the first and other children, male or female, born to her inconceivable. Like, if you're not (laughs) thinking Princess Bride right now, come on. (laughs) Then you have homework to do. So while Sir Louis de Bourgh might have entailed his property to his firstborn, regardless of gender, this was far from the norm. 
if a woman is named heir, this really bucks against this male primogeniture tradition. It's also possible that the marriage settlement might have been written so that if Anne de Berg had had a younger brother, the estate would have gone to him. But in absence of a male heir, the daughter is allowed to inherit. This therefore prevents all the money and property from going off to some cousin who nobody has ever heard of. So marriage was frequently a time when these sorts of things, including an entail, would have been hashed out. And regardless, it really would make sense that someone of Lady Catherine's status, she is actually a daughter of an earl after all. And don't you forget it. And don't you forget it. (laughs) (laughs) That she would have a marriage settlement that prevented any money she brought to the marriage from potentially going to distant relations in absence of a direct male heir, like Mm -hmm. keeping all that money. Yeah. And who knows, it might also be just a de Berg family tradition that the firstborn always inherits no matter what. This is all speculation, really. Yeah, so much of this is just sort of speculative on our part as readers. It's sort of like, well, it could be this, it could be that. Surprisingly, Austin didn't put legal footnotes in the novel. No, (laughs) she did not. (laughs) So let's talk a bit more about the historical background for entailment and some of the legal complications of entailment that come to bear in Pride and Prejudice. Entailments are described by Peter Appel in his article, A Funhouse Mirror of Law, The Entailment in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, as the desire to continue one's property lineage, or what he calls the dynastic urge. The really affluent wanted to keep the property in the family as long as possible. So the entail was a way to preserve the estate and theoretically develop wealth based on that land, etc. And this is a generally accepted desire and purpose of the entail. Like, you don't want your huge estate being chopped up into all these little pieces. Right. And if you, and you don't want to, like, lose out on the money from the estate and what it's bringing in. There was, however, what Appel describes as a conflicting need for the, quote, desirability of alienability, which would account for property owners wanting to use the land as an economic commodity, like putting it up for collateral or selling it outright. So you'd want to be able to have some flexibility with what you could do with your land. And that might be an example of why someone might want to break an entail so that they have a little bit more control over their property. Another reason someone might want to break an entail would be, for instance, if a landed gentry was a traitor to the crown. The crown might want to punish the traitor by taking his land. But if it's entailed, then the next male inheritor would just take over and it might not really displace the traitor's family. So if it's like the traitor's son. Yeah, whose loyalties might still be to his father, for example. Mm -hmm. So the crown wanted a way to bar entails via the, quote, suit for common recovery. Recovering that property. Are we having fun yet? (laughs) Yes. We're we're loving all of this legalese so much. (laughs) So we're going to keep going with that. And the legalities of barring an entail were pretty tricky since not all cases would have been as obvious and direct as like, oh, that's a traitor. We want our land back. So, for instance, what would a family do if the family wanted to bring a suit to bar the entail rather than the crown? And what would that look like? We do have historical precedents for cases of barred entail, even examples of a father breaking an entail to benefit his daughter. This didn't happen often, however, because of the legal intricacies. So there weren't tons of people lining up to challenge these entails. So there is, however, enough of a trend towards this idea of 
breaking an entail, that we get a little bit of legal pushback. So this is when we get the emergence of what's called the strict settlement, which makes barring an entail even more complicated. You know, keep going with us on this ride. So according to Stephen Mahoney in his book, Wealth or Poverty, Jane Austen's novels explored, quote, many estates were held in strict settlements, trusts of which the apparent owner was merely a life tenant. This served to protect family estates from reckless spendthrifts and to ensure their descent, usually to men who would continue the family name and influence. The amount of land held in settlements was large, perhaps between one-half and two-thirds of the land in England. All wrapped up in these really strict settlements. That's a lot. Appel describes the logic of the strict settlement as follows. The basic trick was to ensure that the tenant in possession was always a life tenant, not the tenant in tail, the person in possession of the property, because a tenant in tail could always suffer a common recovery and thus bar the entail. So this is just a reminder that that common recovery is this thing where, you know, the king's like, oh, I want that land back, you know, or, or that we're going to redistribute this land. And you can tell that there's this real fear of common recovery and people just, you know, distributing their property willy nilly. Um, it makes the aristocracy a bit nervous, a bit uncomfortable. Appel then goes on to explain how the strict settlement would work. So strap in for a bit of an extended example. This does read a bit like a story math problem. Just yes, everyone is forewarned. O would convey a life estate to his son, A. A remainder of only a life estate to A's son, B. And then a remainder in tail to the unborn son of B. So that would then be C. That way, the tenant in tail would not have full possession and thus the ability to bar the entail until C stood to inherit at B's death. When B's son, C, came of age, or upon C's contemplated marriage, B would turn to his son and have a frank discussion about the family lands, suggesting that they settle the whole thing so that C would have a life estate instead of in a state in tail, and the unborn son of C would be the tenant in tail. Did everybody follow that? <laughs> so what this essentially means is that to have a strict entail you're basically wrapping it up so that every third generation would have the option to continue or change that strict settlement. But for the two intervening generations, they would have only a life interest in the estate and little to no control over how their property and wealth from that property would be distributed after death. So, so they only have that life interest. So for keeping on with this idea of the strict settlements, Appel then goes on to suggest that, in his example, C would likely be convinced to sign or renew this strict settlement for one of two reasons. First, it's tradition. It's just easier that way and less confusing. Just, this is what we do as a family. Please sign. But the second reason would be if this conversation is happening while C is considering marriage, that would likely factor into those kind of marriage settlement talks. So the potential wife's family might require it as a counterpart to providing wealthy settlements on the potential wife and her children, other than the firstborn son, as well as the next generation. 
So that kind of marriage contract could give a certain amount of security and protection to other members of the family. So sign up for that long-term strict settlement, and then the wife's family is going to give you more money for multiple generations. Kind of how that works. Okay, so now we're going to get into how all of this legal background, specifically about entails and strict settlements, plays out in discussions about the Longborn estate. So there are actually two schools of thought about the entail on Longborn that revolve around the question of whether Mr. Bennett could have broken the entail to better protect his wife and daughters in the event of his death. So we're going to get into that, but we do want to remind you all, (laughs) we are not lawyers. (laughs) So what follows is just the broad strokes of these legal debates, and we'll be just doing our best to break down those two major arguments. So we'll start by talking about the case for Mr. Bennett being powerless to break the entail. And we're going to be citing largely from Sandra McPherson's article, Rent to Own, or What's Entailed in Pride and Prejudice. She's not the only scholar to make this case, but she's going to be our representative example of this kind of argument. So McPherson points out that when we get the description of the entail from the narrator in Pride and Prejudice, we get that specific syntactical language detailing that Longborn, quote, unfortunately for his daughters, was entailed in default of heirs male on a distant relation. So there's something about that phrasing that's important to McPherson. She argues that, quote, Austin's syntax here self-consciously echoes the wording of a settlement in tail mail. She goes on to point out that we don't know who started the settlement, but that this language closely mirrors settlement language that would say something like, 2A for life with a remainder in tail male to the heirs of his body, and on failure of such heirs, a remainder to B and the heirs male of his body. Yeah, there's definitely some echoes in that language. And as a result of this, McPherson concludes that Mr. Bennett only has a life interest in the Longbourn estate and therefore cannot, quote, alienate the fee hold so as to disinherit Mr. Collins. So that's her kind of clear conclusion about that. She also points out that Austin's narrator seems to imply that the only way to break the entail would have been for the Bennets to have a son. She's referring to this passage in the novel. They were to have a son. This son was to join in cutting off the entail as soon as he should be of age, and the widow and younger children would by that means be provided for. So if the Bennets had had a son, according to McPherson, quote, a son would have become tenant in tail in remainder, and upon his maturity, could join his father in a lawsuit that would have barred the entail and made the feehold alienable once more. So what that's basically meaning is, you know, if he had had a son, they could have worked together to get this legal entail broken. But they don't have a son, so the entail remains unbreakable and must go to Mr. Collins. There are two more text-based arguments for this being a strict settlement that Mr. Bennett couldn't have broken. The first is Mrs. Bennett's bitter railing about the entail and her complaints that Mr. Bennett could have done something about the entail if he could be bothered. But immediately after that, we have Jane and Elizabeth explain to their mother that there was nothing that could have been done and that essentially they're telling Mrs. Bennett that she misunderstands the legal intricacies. 
The other text-based evidence that McPherson points to is that Mr. Collins repeatedly apologizes for inheriting the estate. So upon learning of Mr. Collins's first letter, for example, the text reads, quote, It certainly is a most iniquitous affair, said Mr. Bennett, and nothing can clear Mr. Collins from the guilt of inheriting Longbourn. Collins does this obsequious apology routine a few times upon his arrival as well, and McPherson concludes, quote, It is by now easy for us to get the joke, since it is absurd to blame Mr. Collins for a state of affairs mapped out long ago by someone neither he nor we have any connection to, and it is equally absurd to attribute malice, to attribute any agency at all to heirs. Mr. Collins is a mere cog in an elaborate conveyance that pre-exists him and will outlast him. Which I feel like kind of describes everything around Mr. Collins in general. So <laughs> that works. He's just a cog in an elaborate <laughs> conveyance. Yes. Yes. So essentially, yeah, there's nothing that, that can be done, according to McPherson. This is the case that she makes for Mr. Bennett being powerless to challenge the entail on Longbourn. But now we're going to switch gears and lay out the opposite case. So for that, we are going to return to Appel's article, which represents a body of scholarship that argues that Longbourn was only entailed, so not the three-generation lockdown of a strict settlement, and therefore open to a suit for the bar of the entail. So again, Appel is not the only scholar who makes this argument, but he's going to stand as our representative case. And so here are a few of the things Appel states for his reasons for coming to the conclusion that Mr. Bennett could have broken the entail. First, he bases his deduction largely on the text's repeated use of the word entail specifically rather than settlement to explain why Collins is inheriting. He also points out that the situation with Wickham and Lydia reveals a bit more about the state of the entail. Wickham's demands from Mr. Bennett to marry Lydia are as follows. All that is required of you is to assure to your daughter, by settlement, her equal share of the £5,000 secured among your children after the decease of yourself and my sister, and, moreover, to enter into an engagement of allowing her, during your life, £100 per annum. And that reference to settlement in that text is referring to a marriage settlement, not a strict settlement or anything like that. So the 5,000 pounds that, this, that they're referring to here is from Mrs. Bennett's marriage settlements. And then there is the demand for 100 pounds per year during Mr. Bennett's lifetime. So according to Appel, quote, this language strongly suggests that Austin knew the difference between a settlement and an entail and that she depicted Longbourn as falling under the latter legal situation. If Longbourn were strictly settled with a provision for daughters, Wickham would have likely demanded Lydia's share of that as well. Appel then writes that, quote, After examining all of the direct textual references in the novel to the legal status of Longbourn, one must conclude that Austin meant that Longbourn was entailed, not strictly settled. And if Longbourn was entailed, Mr. Bennett could have easily left his library one day, asked his brother-in-law, the solicitor, to draft the necessary papers, engaged the services of a barrister, barred the entail, bequeathed the property to whomever he wished, and then retired to his precious library for the rest of his life. Bit of a burn there, Appel. Yeah. <laughs> 
And I find it interesting that Appel goes on to say that no one in the novel really mentions this fact, probably because they're largely unaware of it. Um, That's the way that he phrases it. But as we mentioned earlier, Mrs. Bennett has a moment when Mr. Collins is first introduced in the novel, when she says, I do think it is the hardest thing in the world that your estate should be entailed away from your own children. And I am sure if I had been you, I should have tried long ago to do something or other about it. So as a result, people have taken the statement from Mrs. Bennett as evidence that Mr. Bennett could have broken the entail. So Appel considers this briefly. He writes, Perhaps she knew something about the nature of an entail, and specifically that it could be barred. After all, her brother-in-law was an attorney in Meryton, and perhaps he had suggested barring the entail before to Mrs. Bennett. But then he points out that, quote, The reaction of Jane and Elizabeth to calm their mother, however, closes that possibility. Jane and Elizabeth are two sensible daughters, and Austin would not give Mrs. Bennett special knowledge in this one particular context when Austin portrays her as foolish in all others. So he's basically saying that Mr. Bennett could have broken the entail, but that Mrs. Bennett and the daughters didn't actually know about that being a possibility. So that's sort of what he's operating under. And that Mrs. Bennett saying that about, I should have tried long ago to do something or other about it, is sort of just Mrs. Bennett talking like she does. Yeah. So to wrap up Appel's argument, he concludes that it is interesting to speculate whether Austin and her contemporary readers would have consciously known that the entail was breakable. He also considers its alternative that Austin and, again, her contemporary readers would not have fully understood the nuance of legal action available to break an entail rather than a strict settlement. Again, all of this going along with the idea that Mr. Bennett could have broken the entail. Yeah. And it's just a matter of, did her readers fully know that, but didn't maybe get the nuance? Or did they have, like, no idea that that was an yes. option? So he's considering that if that if it's the latter case, where they just, they wouldn't have fully understood that nuance, then he argues that this is, quote, a lesson about the relationship between law and societal values. Basically saying that the law is often purposely made obscure and that people sign contracts all the time without really understanding their nuance. And that ignorance about technical legal issues is not really surprising in people without legal training. And if it is the former, and Austin and her readers would have understood the ramifications of Mr. Bennett's lack of action in pursuing a bar to the entail, then it forces us to reread Mr. Bennett's character as less of a dry and witty observer of society's foibles, and instead as a much more neglectful father who is a lot less benign as a character. Yeah. He's not just sort of an absentee parent. He's he's like actively negligent. I mean, I guess there's another possibility you could argue, which is that he could have broken the entail, but even Mr. Bennett didn't know that that was a possibility, you know, that he just wasn't aware. Again, we are so within the realm of just speculation at this point in terms Mm -hmm. of all these various intricacies of the law and what was possible and what was not possible. And there are so many different various examples, like, there's so many different combinations for how this yes. could all be written out. Yeah. I do like the idea, though, that Mrs. Bennett's brother is like, oh, yeah, you could totally break the entail and then, like, doesn't push it at all. like, <laughs> <laughs> Or that he's like, you know, uh, Mrs. Bennett, you should, you know, inform your husband of giving you this legal insight. <laughs> and then, like, nobody's listening to her. Yeah. Like, the, the idea that her, her brother-in-law is just sort of like, eh, it's fine. 
<laughs> We're just going to let it ride. Whatever. Yeah, it's fine. I don't know. I'm, I'm busy, you know? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to really push this at all. Well, and kind of to just kind of bridge this whole gap, right, between like what's possible and the fact that we are reading so much into a rather vague legal situation in the text. According to Maureen B. Collins's article, The Law of Jane, Legal Issues in Austen's Life and Novels, quote, whether Mr. Bennett was forbidden by law or merely lazy, the issue of inheritance drives the plot of one of the great English novels. I think that's something that we can all probably agree on, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a central issue and it's the complexities that make us come back to it, yeah. I think. Whether you like Mr. Bennett as a character or don't like Mr. Bennett as a character, then you can read him either way. You've got some arguments on both sides, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so we do have one last detail to address about the entail that might confuse some readers. And that is the question of surnames in this long-born inheritance. If this is supposed to be an entail that went from Mr. Bennett and through the male line to Mr. Collins, Shouldn't Collins's last name be Bennett as well? This is a head-scratcher, right? Mm -hmm. So Tridel gives us a few possible explanations for this naming phenomenon. He writes, quote, A perfectly plausible answer to this question is to suppose that the original settler had two daughters and settled the estate on the male issue of the elder, with remainder in default of such issue on the male issue of the younger. Another explanation is that maybe there are two branches of the family, and while the primary family name is actually Collins, the family who inherits Longbourn changes their name to Bennett, since that is the name traditionally associated with the estate. So again, this, this whole idea of property and who is going to inherit is obviously very central to Pride and Prejudice. It's also very central to Sense of Sensibility. It's in persuasion with the whole estate of Kellynch, who's going to inherit that. And it's even in Emma a little bit when we get who's going to inherit Donwell Abbey. It's all over Austen's materials. So that was the entail. We hope that we were able to address at least some of the burning questions about the entail that were out there. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austen and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. Stay tuned for next episode, where we will be talking about Catherine and Isabella's horrid novels with Dr. Hannah Doherty-Hudson. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.